1: outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry
0: that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from
1: inside the healthcare system
0: or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and
1: Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com.
2: Hello, everybody. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but it also has considerable expenses. In order to continue bringing you the in-depth author interviews that you count on, we have to pay our bills. So we'd like you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the network. It's easy to do. Just go to any NBN page and follow the donation link. Since we're part of Amherst College Library, you'll be taken to an Amherst College Library page. Go to the NBN line on that page and follow the instructions. That's it. From all of us at the network, thanks for your support.
0: Hey everyone, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. For this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Beatrix Hoffman, professor of history at Northern Illinois University, not far from me in Chicago. Her 2012 book, Healthcare for Some: Rights and Rationing in the United States Since 1930, published by Chicago Press, certainly has some geographic resonance with the area, drawing on a large amount of primary source material related to public health in Chicago. However, she expands her scope to broader territory in order to explore the reciprocal roles of rights and rationing in the development of the modern US healthcare system. The very notion of rationing in the context of healthcare is often deployed in today's debates as a rhetorical argument against any kind of centralized system. Pragmatically speaking, all healthcare is rationed, and the means of doing so have shifted with policy, place, and precedent in important ways over time, an argument sustained throughout the book. On the other hand, we see the conceptions of rights are far from the only kind mobilized in debates about access to care. Rights are often superseded by other agendas like military support, efficiency, and even charity, the irony of which will hopefully not be lost on listeners tuned into debates on philanthropy and social justice. Framing her narrative within this dichotomy of rights and rationing allows Hoffman to chart broader trends in the transformation of American health care. The result is a book driven by big questions that confound many across different political spectra. My personal favorite is, how does the U.S. spend more per capita on healthcare than any other country, while still leaving tens of millions uninsured? Healthcare for Some offers a critical assessment of how the modern U.S. healthcare system came into being, effortlessly splicing together vivid snapshots of local politics and informed takes on national policy debates. That a book this broad and deep in scope is also so compact and accessible is another triumph, and a reason for everyone to get their hands on a copy. Though the book was published in 2012 and written in the heat of debate surrounding the Affordable Care Act, the issues it speaks to are just as important in 2015 as the revised system is being put to the test. I hope you enjoyed listening to my interview with Beatrix as much as I enjoyed conducting it, and I urge you to read and share this book. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Mikey McGovern, and uh, you're listening to New Books in Medicine. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Beatrix Hoffman about her uh, new book, her book from 2012, still semi-new in our uh, parlance, uh, called Healthcare for Some, Rights and Rationing in the United States Since 1930." Uh, And she's currently professor of history at Northern Illinois University, uh, where we are speaking today. Uh, So welcome to New Books Medicine, Beatrix.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so as we sort of uh, have discussed, the way we like to start in the New Books Network is to have you sort of chart your interests, uh, you know, in the field in general and how you sort of got into this line of study and work.
2: Oh, I love that question. And it made me realize I have to go pretty far back, if that's okay, Oh,
0: absolutely. to when
2: I was studying in the UK as a master's student at University of Warwick, and I was doing a degree in, in comparative British and American labor history, and we did a, a unit on comparative welfare states. Mm-hmm. And I just became, I guess, obsessed with the whole notion of American welfare exceptionalism and why we developed uh, such a limited welfare state in comparison to... European countries and many other countries as well. I wasn't at the time specifically interested in health insurance or healthcare. Uh-huh. It was more the overall question of uh, welfare state development. Um, and then when I went, I went to Rutgers to study with Alice Kessler Harris, who was also starting to look at uh, social policy. And um, I chose healthcare as a case study for my dissertation <laughs> because I really wanted to write about uh, the progressive era. Because that's where you know historians really see the origins of this divergence in, in welfare state development. And then I guess I was hooked on the whole question of why did the U.S. develop the crazy healthcare system that, that we have today? And so my first book focused on the progressive era um, when there was the very first campaign for worker, sponsor, uh, worker and state-sponsored health insurance, which took place in New York in the 1910s. So it was really a, a political history of a failed reform movement and it was I argued it was a turning point in the development of our unique healthcare system because it was at that point that we diverged from um, the model of starting with social insurance programs and building on those mm. to universal uh, entitlements and social rights. And that case study was was published as, it's called The Wages of Sickness, uh, was my first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there, I, I I wasn't ready to stop <laughs> my inquiry. <laughs> I still had so many questions, and I knew I wanted to go further into the 20th century and probably, just given my inclination, probably go up to the present, which I did end up doing mm-hmm. in my second book. And... Initially, my, my question for the, the book that we're talking about today, Healthcare for Some, the subtitle of that book is Rights and Rationing in the United States Since 1930. Initially, it was just going to be about rights. So yeah. I wanted to write a history of the right to health care. And the grant proposals I wrote at the time were all on that topic. And I focused that question around, what I guess, what I see as a paradox in the American health system, which is that there is no official um, social right to health care. But there is this very strong, I think there's an idea and there's an undercurrent that the denial of health care is unjust. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And you see that more on an everyday basis as opposed to uh, part of our political discourse. But that belief in a fundamental right to health care is embodied in one very specific way in our health system, and that's in the emergency room. (laughs) So I originally had the question, how is it that we have, or why is it, that we have a right to emergency care, but we do not, we do not have universal health insurance, we do not have other rights to access in, in the U.S. health system. Mm-hmm. So that was the question that drove me at, at the very beginning.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I did some research, and I realized that the right to emergency care had only been around for a short time, since 1986. Mm-hmm. So I developed a, a proposal around that idea, the history of the right to emergency care and what that means for healthcare care rights in general. But then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> I had developed some other themes around issues of rights, such as rights in Medicare and Medicaid, uh, rights for indigents, mm. which has a long history, uh, debates over rights uh, of the poor to health care. Uh, but when I put it all together into a book proposal, I realized I was seeing something else that I wasn't just writing history of rights. I was also writing a history of the denial of rights and that it was out of this clash between the demands for access and the denial of care that the story was emerging. Mm-hmm. And then it hit me that this is a kind of rationing
3: mm-hmm. that came almost
2: at the end of my research process. So I didn't have <laughs> the theme of rationing in mind. As I was writing It really came to me at the end And then, then the, the narrative really fell into place
3: mm-hmm.
2: Because I realized I could write it a book chronologically Tracing um, How American healthcare has been Rationed, how it's been distributed uh, Under the theme Which ended up as the title Of healthcare for some Because by definition The American way of rationing Is also a way of exclusion mm-hmm and a repudiation of universalism.
0: Mm. Right, and that's why rationing has such sort of, you know, it animates discourse, right? It has such a negative valence to it. (laughs)
2: Exactly. And I knew it would be controversial to use that term, and I I wanted it to be so, because Mm. it's been used in such a specific way in debates, Mm. um, and as a word that's applied to other health systems, but not our own. And... I figured to trace that historically and to show that the United States has rationed to make that argument with historical evidence might hopefully add something to our political debates.
0: Yeah, and I and I remember when I started reading the book, just sort of that aha moment of saying that yes, cost control and all of these um, you know governmental mechanisms for regulating healthcare, these are in a way they're they're a form of rationing. They're not the same exact, and you sort of outline a different you know different lineages of kinds of rationing and their perception. It's not the same thing directly as you know in World War Two, um, you know food rationing that was, you know, enforced by the federal government. Um, (laughs) it's sort of a more, it's a more diffuse kind of rationing Mm -hmm. that's bound up. I think in some of these, you know, new logics of, of governance of neoliberalism, not words that like are used in the book necessarily, but, um, things that it definitely seems to address the emergence of. Absolutely. Yeah. I thought it was really fascinating. And so, um, I guess we've, uh, we've sort of unraveled the concepts pretty well. And so I just have a basic question, <laughs> actually. So your book deals with uh, you know, the 1930s to the present in the U.S. But where would you sort of see you know, in the world, in time, the origin of like, insurance as such, um, insurance provided by a state um, for either emergencies or for general well-being?
2: Um, so the origins of social insurance uh, are in Germany. In the 1880s, and the German social insurance system was not established as a kind of progressive uh, move. It was kind of the opposite,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, because the Chancellor Bismarck was trying to actually quiet social unrest in his country and, and specifically, a socialist movement by offering, uh, you know, services and, and benefits to calm down the workers, basically. Mm-hmm. And so it was seen as, you know, kind of the, an enlightened type of, of governance, but still rather autocratic,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and as a way of of creating social order. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that idea spread to other European countries, including, you know, more liberal regimes like in Great Britain, which established national insurance in 1911, mm-hmm. and that's where the progressives in the U.S. got the idea to to try it themselves. <laughs>
0: but of course in an, in a very different in a very different way right exactly. commingled with uh, private interests more than um in these other countries
2: yes by that time the private interests um were certainly making them their power felt um not to the extent that they would later in the 20th century
3: mm-hmm.
2: but uh the certainly the medical profession in the US was a major obstacle to the development of worker health insurance in the 1910s as mm-hmm. was private business, which organized in in a way that they had not in Britain to, to prevent the passage of state health insurance legislation.
0: Mm -hmm. And that sort of leads me into my next question, which is about doctors Mm
2: -hmm. and the changing
0: role of doctors in this book. So I don't know, I see many, there are many different actors that you have. And I think that it takes a very good, um, you know, look at lots of different places, but, um, I think that Doctors and throughout the book are interesting because you sort of see them as feeling um, kind of marginalized by the system and feeling a lot of pressure. Um, you know, they don't want to necessarily buy into Of the government's insurance plans. They think that they won't be reimbursed. In often cases, the reimbursement is quite delayed. And so, you know, there's sort of uh, a lot of angst from the medical uh, community around this whole, you know, regulation of medicine. And then later on, it's funny because you even, as with the rise of managed care, you actually see these doctors' um, voices in policy. You begin to see them cropping up less and less, at least in the context of your book. So, I guess my question really in all this is, you know, from this broader perspective, um, how justified do you think that these gripes of physicians were, that they were being forced into a system that was essentially offloading the you know, the kind of burden onto them rather than the state? Do you think that those claims were more justified, or were they sort of rhetoric to achieve yeah. the goals of the organizations?
2: Um, that's a great question. I think that the answer changes depending on the time period that we're talking about. One thing I've argued, I think, in all my work is that ideology and interest are not really separate, and they, they often work together. Uh, but in, in the case of physicians, the ideology of physician independence, their desire to set their own fees, certainly that's, that benefits them financially, but they, were, they also firmly believed that that was the best way to provide medical care and mm-hmm. to create high-quality uh, medical care. Where I think the rhetoric overcame the reality, um, well, there are several instances of that. There were, often, there were many examples of how uh, state-provided or organized health insurance could benefit physicians. And even the evidence from Great Britain, where physicians had initially not been happy about national insurance... Uh, By the time the debates were going on in the U.S. and later in the 1910s, there was evidence that British physicians were making more money under health insurance because they were getting paid for treating poor people. Mm -hmm. And um, American physicians had a very heavy burden of treating the poor uh, on a charity basis, and that uh, also affected their incomes negatively. So there there was evidence for a financial benefit from health insurance for them. But the ideology really trumped that. For most of the 20th century, as the book shows, mm-hmm. um, and certainly the Cold War intensified that the physicians' argument that socialized medicine would be a threat to both their profession and also to to patients. But as you said, and um, Paul Starr certainly made this argument in his uh, the social transformation of American medicine, physicians ended up being more enthralled to. Uh, corporations rather than the government. And so their interests gradually shifted to be more and more in favor of some sort of um, government regulation, at least of private health insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And so in the last couple of big major um, health insurance debates in the Clinton era and also the more recent one, we definitely see many more physicians coming out in support of reform. And the AMA is no longer the main opposition. Uh, they, in fact, have been superseded, uh, replaced actually, by the insurance industry <laughs> as the major private interest that opposes reform.
0: It took that long. It did, <laughs> huh? That's fascinating. Yeah,
2: this has been—it's been over a hundred years now. Yeah. this Battle.
0: Yeah, and it's really, it's it, it's it's tricky too because you know you sort of see obviously. Concerns about the regulation of health are emerging at the same time as you know, uh, be you know, the medical profession is sort of solidifying itself professionally. So it's just this really, uh, it's a very interesting period. That kind of time between, I guess, um, you know, the Gilded Age and then uh, sort of right up to where your book picks up. Um, just because there's so many, um, you know, potential interests and so many major transformations underway.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. And and, and also also not not a character that isn't really uh, dealt with in the book as much, but the sort of nascent pharmaceutical industry in particular is also probably playing a big role in this as, you know, um, alignments with different insurers um, emerge.
2: They are, and that's one of the threads I did not develop in the book. You know, they they come up here and there, and Mm -hmm. especially in the, the middle section when I talk about the rise of private health insurance. and. Pharmaceutical companies—they um, formed a basically a public relations firm to advertise private insurance because they saw it as in their own interest that, mm-hmm. that their drugs would would be covered.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: there's probably a whole book to be written about that about <laughs> the pharmaceutical companies' relationship with health insurance debates.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that. Um... I, one of my previous interviews, uh, Joe Gabriel, his book sort of addresses the beginning of this, but mm-hmm. I think that he, well, he's going to work on a book on addiction, and then I think he also wants to go after this uh, this kind of relationship right. here that you're discussing. So hopefully, we'll be seeing some more on that soon from multiple people. Sounds great. It would be fascinating. And so one of the uh, one of the other things, still, still, I guess, on the subject of physicians, one of the other points that I found interesting in the book was. There's a lot of talk in, I guess, 20th century history about the infrastructural and policy changes uh, in the post war, post World War II period. Um, But I think that you highlight really well some of the actual influences of, you know, the experience of the U.S. at war on the development of the medical system. And in particular, you made a claim that um, because or. Doctors who had gone to serve abroad had worked essentially in group practice for standard wages. They sort of brought back that um, that kind of mindset, that that was an acceptable way to do medicine, which, um, you know, was directly um, in opposition to the AMA's views that you know, physicians should always act, you know, kind of autonomously and as individuals. And so... I'm, I'm interested to know, though, like more about that. What else did, you know, the experience of America going into war, what else did that bring into you know, the kind of uh, nascent um, insurance reforms and help just, I guess, medical professional reforms?
2: Well, in, in World War II, the role of the federal government in health provision really increased um, for the first time pretty dramatically, especially in, with public health measures but also, they began a, a limited plan of hospital construction. So, it was the first federal involvement in building up the hospital system, which would become huge after uh, World War II later in the 40s. Um, the experience of the physicians that you mentioned, I think, was important in popularizing and spreading the idea of uh, prepaid group health insurance, which had been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but their experience has kind of consolidated that that this could be an option. And um, so that kind of insurance uh, did grow after, during and after World War II. Uh, But I think the main argument I make in that chapter is that there were some very uh, important experiments with uh, federal provision of health care, especially the... Emergency Maternity and Infant Care Act, which was unprecedented for, for this country, mm-hmm. in which the, the government actually paid for um, military wives uh, to pay for their labor and delivery and even uh, postnatal care for their, for their children, which without a wartime emergency would have been seen as shockingly socialistic for the United States. Mm-hmm. And this was a program that was incredibly successful. And it was praised by pretty much everybody involved. Not all physicians liked it, but many did. And the uh, recipients of the care were almost unanimously ecstatic in support of it, as were reformers who had proposed it. But because it was proposed as a wartime measure, and even the the name itself is Emergency Maternity Infant Care Act, it was temporary. Mm -hmm. And so they ended it after the war with the argument that this is not something that we want to permanently change, the health care system. So to the disappointment of reformers, there was basically retrenchment after World War II. So I would say there was a big opportunity for fundamental systemic change brought about by the war, but that it was very deliberately pushed back
3: mm-hmm.
2: through things like the cancellation of that program, the cancellation of the Farm Security Administration cooperative programs that, uh, had started in the New Deal. Mm. And then, of course, the final kind of blow was the defeat of uh, Harry Truman's national health insurance proposal mm-hmm. later in the decade. So I see World War II as, as really a mixed bag that, you know, there was possibility for change but mm. was not completely fulfilled.
0: Yeah, and the reversal seems to have become so dramatic that Um, I remember reading in one instance um, with, I guess, some of these private insurers, pregnancy actually became sort of listed as a, you know, a kind of um, like a precondition, right? As, uh, you know, something an that... An excludable condition. Exactly. Yeah. Something that you could be denied mm-hmm. support on the basis of because, oh, well, obviously, of course, if you, uh, you know, you would know that you were going to be getting pregnant, getting this insurance. So we will call it a pre existing condition and not cover it.
2: Well, that's a great example of how this was proposed as a right in World War II, and then it was completely repudiated. Mm-hmm. And private insurance actually said, no, it's not a right at all. It's just the opposite. It's one of the most excludable of all conditions. And um, that actually reminds me of one other thing I really must mention that did come out of World War II is, of course, the, the growth of the private health insurance industry. So the two major changes that persisted after World War II was the growth of the hospital system subsidized by the federal government and the growth of private health insurance. And that was encouraged during the war by um, the government encouraging industries to provide fringe benefits for their mm. workers in place of higher wages mm. during the war hmm. and then the private health insurance uh, plant uh, plans just mushroomed after the war yeah, in private industry
0: I, and I also wonder about I and mean, this, this the whole and you bring up the rise of the hospital system, which is sort of one of the things I definitely wanted to ask you more about, because that seems to me to be one of the most kind of decisively American <laughs> terms of the healthcare system. Right. Um, and it's based upon, I mean, the idea of promoting a hospital system, you know, it has many sorts of supports. You know, one is that we can you know, kind of build larger research infrastructure. But two is that <laughs> we already have a mechanism in place for exclusion. And we can continue to sort of, um, you know, use this mechanism that we know and simply expand it rather than trying to rethink what healthcare might actually mean um, for the country. So, I don't know, could you could you span uh, expand a bit on the. Sort of, what were the assumptions and decisions involved in the expansion of the hospital system? Because it was was one of those things that many people would say, oh, it's inevitable for the modernization of medicine. You know, the birth of modern medicine is in, you know, the hospital. That's where research comes from. And that's sort of the, I guess that's the standpoint that people like me who study the, you know, medical, who study medical science are accustomed to seeing. But there's, you know, there are so many other Uh ways that it could have been.
2: (laughs) So the idea that it's a natural development in, in the advance of medicine. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you certainly, I mean, you do see the growth of hospital systems in all advanced uh, industrialized countries, but where the U S is distinctive is that, um, is the repudiation of other alternatives to supplement a hospital system, such as primary care, long-term care, home care, uh, clinics, uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, this change, this growth of the hospital system after World War II, was also very, very deliberate. It was not just a natural outcome of what was happening in the healthcare system. It was a product of um, well, several things. The defeat of national health insurance, for one. Uh, hospital construction had been part of Harry Truman's national health plan, and post-war reformers strongly believed that building up the hospital system would be crucial for making the American health system more modern and advanced, and also for reaching more people, Mm -hmm. that it would be good for everybody. But it was just part of a broader program that included, especially coverage, to pay for that care. Mm -hmm. But what ended up happening when Truman's plan was defeated was the hospital system grew up without all those other mechanisms. So it was really most basically a construction program. (laughs) <laughs> to, make, to build buildings. Mm-hmm. And it, did, it certainly did bring access to hospital care to especially remote areas of the country. It was very heavily emphasizing rural uh, populations. Its sponsors were um, from rural areas. Mm-hmm. And so it certainly increased the availability of hospitals. But it did not provide, for for example, um, staffing of the hospitals. The idea was that if you build them, they will come, that doctors and nurses will be attracted. And to a certain extent, that was true. Um, But most importantly, it didn't include mechanisms for access. They they managed to um, get through the 50s because of things like the growth of private health insurance and Blue Cross. Mm -hmm. So people were becoming increasingly covered for hospital care. But the Hill-Burton Act, which is the the federal law that created the, this hospital construction uh, program after World War II, did as you as, exactly as you say, have built-in mechanisms for exclusion as well as increasing access. So there was language in the legislation that allowed Southern hospitals to continue to segregate by race. Mm-hmm. And there was also kind of very careful language. This was a product of a lot of uh, kind of behind the scenes debates that would make sure that hospitals would not be required to provide a lot of free care. So there was language saying that they had to provide some, uh, but it was not, there was no enforceable regulation. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think the argument that I, I make in the book is that every, every expansion of access that's happened in the 20th century. Which through yes, they benefit millions of people, but they also have built-in mechanisms for exclusion and, therefore, rationing.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and the
2: Hilberton Act is no exception.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm I mean, even recalling a part in the book where you discussed, um, you know, the, in, in the Civil Rights Movement, um, trying to you know, open up some of these segregated hospitals, and the rhetoric existed on the other side that by um, you know the Civil Rights protesters trying to shut down the hospitals, that they were in fact Denying um, those who were being treated uh, of their access, you know, of their right to health care So it turns it, it you know, turns the argument around right its head. I think it was the governor of Alabama, Wallace George Wallace. Yeah, <laughs> he wrote some sort of very inflammatory. <laughs> um, that wouldn't surprise piece. me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's that's very tricky. And one of the actually, actually while we're on the subject, I guess of uh, civil rights, one thing I found really interesting. Um, that I, you know, I had no idea about the origins of Medicare and Medicaid was the way in which um, obviously the promotion of an expansion of these programs, one of the main pillars was of course, care for the elderly and um, you know, end of the sort of dignity at end of life care. Um, but also the other pillar was uh, the civil rights movement. So it's, I, I never thought of those two as kind of, or seen them as really related. Um, and I, but perhaps that's probably because I didn't know that much about the, um, I guess, you know, the sort of lack of, you know, dignity and respect for um, the elderly. Those mm-hmm. sort of implicit in the existing systems. So could you maybe expand a bit on what exactly, you know, um, contributed to the passing of Medicare and Medicaid?
2: Um, sure. And th- this is still a subject of debate among historians, but I can certainly mm-hmm. give you uh, my take on it. Uh, that also builds on some other um, wonderful Books by uh, Jill Quadagno, for example, and David Barton-Smith have written a lot about the origins of Medicare and the role of civil rights um, in the implementation of Medicare. Uh, But regarding the the elderly, the growth of private health insurance that that we were talking about in in the 50s and 60s did not extend to the elderly because it was so very much tied to employment. Hmm. Even if people got good insurance through their jobs they would either lose it or they would end up paying a lot more when they retired. So the elderly in the 50s and early 60s were the most underinsured group. And they were also the most medically needy. I mean, they still are because the elderly require more medical care than any other group in the population.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And this this um, this contradiction, I guess, became quite clear that the expansion of health insurance was not going to cover everybody. And it was, in fact, creating a lot of discontent among a constituency that was becoming increasingly important. And it was Mm -hmm. certainly growing in size and it was also growing in influence. So the private insurance industry, in a way, um, you know, was (laughs) digging its own grave, if you will, because they were very much opposed (laughs) to further government expansion into health care. But without covering the elderly, you know, something had to be done. Mm-hmm. And that really led an opening, left, left an opening for Medicare to be established, mm-hmm. along with Medicaid, in 1965.
0: Mm-hmm. Huh. That's really interesting. You sort of, yeah, you, you you would think that that would be something that private companies would be very interested in sort of you know, emergently capitalizing upon, right?
2: It was just too expensive. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't offer private coverage to a, a needy population, and, and that's the problem with that's the fundamental nature of private insurance: is that they're trying to they bring down their costs by insuring people who don't need to use whatever it is that they're providing, whether it's you know auto insurance or, or health insurance. Mm. Private insurance companies have an interest in insuring only the healthy mm. or those who are likely to be healthy. And mm. so it, there's a contradiction between health coverage for seniors and the imperatives of private insurance. Mm-hmm. And that contradiction is as well led to Medicare, which at the time was the largest health reform in American history mm-hmm. until 2010.
0: <laughs> exactly, and actually to sort of and see how that shades into the present and to kind of contradict what I just said. <laughs> um, now it sort of seems like eh, what we get in the you know, the rhetoric and the discourse about in the debate over um, healthcare access now. Is that expanding to more people is, um, exactly, is antithetical to, uh, this sort of dignity at end of life and this, you know, <laughs> horrible, like, rhetoric of, oh, well, obviously they're gonna have to, you know, in order to, uh, control costs, um, to provide access to more people, we're going to have to have, you know, these, you know, silly things like death committees and whatnot. And that's a very, you know, it's, it's, it's very active rhetoric still, mm-hmm. really. And it, it, it surprises me, but, That's sort of where this weird, you know, logic of cost control comes into play and sort of it characterizes as you, as you sort of characterize in later chapters of the book, it's sort of, this is the way that most of the administrations, I think from, you know, from Carter onward, uh, I guess Nixon's, um, Nixon's changes as well could be characterized Mm -hmm. as being this, but almost every administration after, uh, you know, from the 1970s onward has focused on healthcare primarily through the lens of cost control rather than access or trying to take a broader uh, view of health. So it's this kind of, it's maybe an obvious question, but what do you see as the most damaging uh, part of this logic of cost control?
2: Oh, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> but there's the logic, there's no logic to it is, is the main problem that I see. Mm-hmm. Because if, if we were to just take a step back and ask, how do other countries manage to spend half or less of what the U.S. spends mm-hmm. on health care? The answer is, well, a huge part of the answer is universal coverage.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But somehow we can't get there in the debate. Mm-hmm. So the logic is, is upside down. Uh, the argument, as you said, um, and as I say in the book, from Nixon onward, is that universal coverage is going to cost too much we don't hear enough about how other countries manage to reduce costs with universal coverage and that's it's a it's a basic principle of even private insurance
3: mm-hmm.
2: community rating as opposed to experience rating so the more people you have in the insurance pool
3: mm-hmm.
2: the lower the costs because then the healthy people will help you know reduce the costs of the unhealthy people
3: mm-hmm.
2: that's insurance logic yet somehow we can we cannot seem to willingly apply that to the entire healthcare care system.
0: Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've read arguments that, I mean, even, even sympathetic arguments that are kind of more toward the libertarian side of things that, Oh, well, you know, the sort of naturalized assumptions about the market as being the engine for driving down costs. And there's, so there is that sort of, there's a logic on one side of this kind of radical, um, you know, uh, severing of like the government from the medical system. And I've, I mean, I I sort of struggle to see how that would work in practice sometimes, but that's one example of a logic. And I guess that the issue is that there, the entrenchments are just um, so deep. The you know the entrenched interests in the pharmaceutical industry and in uh, you know in the insurance industry that's at issue and in the your hospital book system. and the mm-hmm. hospital system. It's it's it sort of seems like you know it's a, it's a very big tangled web, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it is.
2: It's terribly complicated.
0: <laughs> hmm. And so. Oh, but but one thing, actually, (laughs) to provide, I guess, a moment of clarity. Uh, Another thing I found interesting about, you know, sort of within this tangled web, um, as I was saying earlier about the different kinds of actors that I noticed in your book, um, some of the main actors I see in these policy changes are actually events, right, that sort of drive and nucleate certain kinds of concerns and serve as catalysts um, for action. And so, you know, you see things like, you know, the AIDS epidemic and uh, Hurricane Katrina, Really bring back into the public discourse um, ideas about or um, yeah ideas about what um, health and health coverage should consist in, and it kind of reminded me in a way of uh, michel foucault 's favorite uh, quote from his mentor, uh, Georges Congièm, who said that the, the the pathological while logically posterior to normalcy is actually psychologically anterior, that we can only really <laughs> have any insight on you know natural, you know, natural processes, which was the context he was using it in, or on social processes, except when they go really, really horribly wrong. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yet that still doesn't seem to drive the United States to create fundamental change.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, the, the examples that that you mentioned—the AIDS epidemic and Hurricane Katrina, as well as other you know big healthcare emergencies—the um, story that I tell about them in my book is that they again, they reproduce this, this pattern of rationing. Um, again, expanding care, but at the same time limiting it mm-hmm. and ensuring that new benefits do not extend universally to everybody. So in the case of AIDS, uh, which um, one of the things I enjoyed writing most about writing the book was including some case studies of social movements in healthcare
3: Mm -hmm.
2: uh, because those have really just started to begun being studied by, by historians. And the AIDS movement was really, in so many ways, the most successful in, you know, in winning their demands, especially when it came to um, drug development, drug approval, and really just changing the whole relationship between patients and, um, and research, mm-hmm. so they were stunningly successful in, in creating this fundamental, I would say, cultural change, and also in regulatory change, and also in in changing the culture's attitude toward uh, people with HIV. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not not completely, but a very powerful movement. Um, and they did succeed in also extending access uh, through the, the Ryan White Care Act, which it was a federal, which is a federal program that basically provides coverage for people with AIDS, health coverage. So hospital care, um, home care, etc. that's not available to people with other health conditions. Mm-hmm. So we have this a victory, but at the same time it's not, it's limited. And it's very deliber- deliberately limited by Congress to, to not extend to people outside of a certain category.
0: Right. And that's sort of the, I guess that's kind of the double-edged sword of that sort of very specific uh, disease condition based activism. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that um, it's sort of, it's not like anybody's directly in competition with one another because everybody has the same goals, but the mechanisms of persuasion and the kinds of uh, the kinds of outcomes people will settle on may be antithetical to a more general <laughs> um, like reworking of the system.
2: Yeah. And I, I certainly don't you know, blame the social movements for, for that outcome it's really the nature of the healthcare system itself that, that limits the ability of social movements to, to reach kind of broader goals because, like we were saying earlier, it's a web, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to target so many of different nodes in the web in order to really create change. And it's no wonder that many um, social movements can only focus on one. Yeah. I mean, you know, is it going to be hospitals? Is it going to be private insurance? Is it going to be community care? Is, yeah. is it going to be, you know, there's many other possibilities, disease-based advocacy, et cetera. And there's been a lot of activism, but there has not yet been a unified, you know, really coherent, powerful movement for universal coverage.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: There, there's certainly been, you know, movements that, that are persistent, and important, like the movement for single payer, um, and they've had such an uphill battle in even getting listened to in in Washington.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, maybe maybe this is a good opportunity to expand more, I guess, in sort of where um, you know, the, the book's, not really the epilogue, the conclusion of the book is um, you know very much uh, within sort of you know the two uh, thousands and 2010s. So perhaps this, is a, perhaps this is a way into that. Uh, I had to write that, that at
2: the last minute. <laughs> I had to return in the whole manuscript when the uh, Affordable Care Act passed. Yeah. So the epilogue was a last-minute edition.
0: <laughs> I think Writing even,
2: history as it happens.
0: <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. I think even today, as we sit here doing this interview, the hearings on the constitutionality yes. of the Affordable Care yeah, Act they, are going. happening today. Yeah. So serendipitous somewhat,
3: Mm
0: -hmm. but I mean, anyway, so i I'd be interested to hear your take on, um, I had sort of a bigger question in mind of how sort of, you know, taking the approach that you do to, you know, contextualizing historically, all these different attempts to, um, extend and limit and ration, uh, healthcare. What, what perspective, I guess, these changes, these attempts, you know, by some to cover more people um how those sort of shed light on the issues of the present and can help us kind of mitigate some of the you know problems in the debate that's going on obviously it's not um, it's not like reading history is necessarily a way to adjust everybody's perception, who sort of might see things one way or another. <laughs> That'd be nice, <laughs> right? It, it, it can provide facts, but then of course um, it's interesting because you know in politics people do uh, sort of very <laughs> much believe that certain kinds of facts are more socially constructed than others. <laughs> so, what what do you think the real takeaway is of doing this kind of history um, for these kind of present debates? Huge question. I know so feel yeah. free to answer in any way you like <laughs>
2: well i really i do want this country to talk about rationing and mm-hmm. how we already do it mm-hmm. and the fact that we don't i think really limits it limits debate and it also limits the possibilities for how we make reforms and, and limits the resulting reforms and there's so many problems that we're running into with the affordable care act and I, I, I see a lot of those as based in this history of rationing. You know, so one of them being there's going to be different types of coverage for different people. Mm-hmm. So universalism was really not part of it. Was not part of the Affordable Care Act, and that that's a change because up through the Clinton reform effort, universalism was a pretty fundamental principle for healthcare reform. But by 2010, uh, that was that was history, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> And so instead, they're going to expand coverage for different groups of people in different ways. So if you're uninsured, you might have access to a state or, or federal exchange. Depending on your income, you might give, get subsidies for that. That's what's being debated in the Supreme Court today. Right, right. And if you're very poor or you know, between poverty and, and you know, lower middle class, then Medicaid expansion was supposed to help you out. That again was partly repudiated by the 2012 Supreme Court decision mm-hmm. uh, your your coverage still depends on the the kind of coverage available to you still depends on what state you live in mm-hmm. uh, again, what kind of job you have, whether you're employed unemployed, how large or small your employer is so it's there's you know so many layers of categorization in the act, and so it, I guess it makes it easier for. For opponents to kind of chop off bits of it, mm-hmm. you know, so the Medicaid expansion has been drastically curtailed. If if the subsidies are struck down, uh, they're in big trouble. Um, I think that's highly unlikely, but I, I'm not going to predict. But I, I guess my point is, we see rationing built in. Even again, even as expansion and access are increased, the rationing that's built in is is making the program vulnerable.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It also divides the constituency for support, Mm -hmm. because not everybody has the same stake in the system. A lot of people kept their old insurance. Some people had to pay more, and they don't like that. Other people are left out. There's still more fragmentation as opposed to unity or or getting together behind the idea of coverage for all. Mm -hmm. So we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, my... I feel like this history has to remind us that rationing has consequences mm. for for human life and health.
0: Mm. I think that one of the other one of the other fascinating things that you address is how sort of through this act and through its mechanisms, that sort of web of dependencies and interests is in a way kind of, you know, it's, it's being thickened, right? This logic of like, you know, how we can cost control is just is so diffuse. And now sort of, you, 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 you mentioned the fact that um, while certain, while certain um, interests are curtailed by, you know, basically um, disallowing certain kinds of limousine mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> policies, what is happening is that um, the extension of care is occurring through, um, you know, private organizations. Right, right, right. And so it's enrolling more and more into that and sort of, you know, it just builds more into the system. And so it's, so it's just such a different thing than... Um, than expanding, just access or, you know, axing all of that and starting afresh with, you know, universal health care. I think even that <laughs> is an important takeaway message for a lot of people, right? I think it's something that people ha- take umbrage with, but I guess the point would be for them to recognize that, well, it's sort of like the expansion of the hospital system was uh, kind of just an expansion of existing infrastructures um, to solve a problem rather than a radical kind solution. And
2: injecting a lot of federal... Money into private into private providers,
3: right?
2: Um, but it's also it's also critical to recognize that there you know there were compromises, and there are some really important things that the act does that I think curtail American style rationing, and especially when it comes to private health insurance, because mm. these private companies are now getting a lot more federal money, but they had to give up something in exchange for that and what they gave up was the right to exclude people mm-hmm. of, with pre existing conditions and the right to spend oh, you know over a certain amount of their um, income you know they, they have to spend now more of their income on actual health care as opposed to other things. And so there's the, there are these new um, restrictions on what insurance companies can do. It's mm-hmm. so kind of in the way that Medicare it really helped hospitals, but it also controlled them more than they had been before. So they were forced to provide; um, they were forced to desegregate, racially desegregate. In the eighties, um, they were forced to lower costs to a certain extent.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I think it's again a moment of possibility where we have these federal subsidies, you know, to the tune of to the billions of dollars to the private health insurance industry. But that also might be an opening for. Private insurance to act more, um, to to open access, mm-hmm. and and maybe to create more fundamental change. Right. We we shall see.
0: Rel, rel, relinquishing control in yeah. the interest of securing stability. Yeah, that's
2: yeah. a good way of
0: putting it. Yeah, in a, in, a, in a way, right? It's the model of kind of uh, well, it's it's the sort of paternalistic model of medicine, right? <laughs> Obviously, I wouldn't go for it so far as to equate the two, <laughs> mm-hmm. but. Hmm yeah that's really interesting to think with and so thinking toward the future um, we like to conclude interviews uh, now that our time is sort of seeming to uh, be coming to an end uh, we like to conclude interviews by asking you uh, asking our interviewees about their present work so could you maybe uh, you know tell us a few of the things that you're working on at present?
2: Oh I would love to because I'm so excited about what I'm working on now although I haven't had time to work on it uh, recently <laughs> but uh, I-, I guess it It kind of goes back to the um, Obamacare debates when, I don't know if you recall that Joe Wilson, the the congressman, shouted out, you lie Mm -hmm. when the president uh, was discussing leaving undocumented immigrants out of of the reform. So my new project is actually on the right to health care for the undocumented Mm -hmm. in American history. And I'm also... Doing a comparative project on that same topic, so looking at how other countries handle the issue of access to healthcare for immigrants. But that's at the very beginning stages, and I really look forward to working on it. I've mm-hmm. done some research uh, last last year. I was in Europe, and I did some research at the WHO and the UN to find the origins of international agreements on healthcare rights, mm-hmm. uh, like the Covenant on Economic and social rights of the of the United Nations. Uh, so I'm going to start there. I'm going to kind of look at the, the global like, like policy history of ideas about healthcare for immigrants, and then use the U.S. as a, a deeper case study. Because mm. my favorite thing is to do social history. Actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's where my heart lies. So <laughs> I want to write a social history of how immigrants experience the healthcare system.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds really fascinating. I'm sure we all uh, look forward to that book coming out when it eventually does. Thank you. And thank you so much again for uh, giving me your time this uh, this evening, I guess. And My pleasure. And also for all you out there, thanks so much for listening. Uh, please go out and uh, purchase this book, Healthcare for Some, Rights and Rationing in the United States, since 1930. Um, it's really important, I think, to actually understand the origins of the systems that we're now sort of you know calling into question and dealing with the anime public debate and reading this book is a great way to get yourself acclimated with uh, where we are coming from so thank you so much again this has been new books in medicine have a nice day